Welcome to the Canadian Real Estate Investor, where hosts Daniel Foch and Nick Hill navigate the market and provide the tools and insights to build your real estate portfolio. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to another episode of the Canadian Real Estate Investor Podcast. My name is Daniel Foch. I am kind of joined here by my co-host, my buddy Nick. Little technical difficulties, as is tradition. Yeah, I mean, I guess I'm kind of joined by you because we are experiencing yet another Wi-Fi issue here. I guess, you know, this digital nomad, podcaster, real estate investor lifestyle is not supported by our lovely internet providers in this country, is it? Yeah, I guess (laughs) this is what happens when you have a telco oligopoly or ISP oligopoly in the Canadian market. I mean, I would say most of our major economies are highly oligopolistic, which is funny. And that's a big word. So I will, uh, I'll define it, which is a decent segue into what we're going to be talking about today. But an oligopoly is a market that's dominated by a handful of different competitors, not to be confused with a monopoly, which is a single competitor or a duopoly, which is two competitors. An oligopoly is the same as where you hear the term oligarch. And in Canada, we have them in a lot of our different markets. Yeah. So it's been funny, but it hasn't stopped us from putting out good content, which I like. No, we will not let it stop us. And you know, I think we both are going to need to invest in Starlink maybe at some point. And I don't know why. There's got to be a better solution for this. We just haven't figured it out yet. But yeah, actually, regardless... It's funny you mentioned that because I signed up for Starlink like a year and a half ago. And they're hoping to deliver it to my area in November of this year. But you know, the CRTC has been pretty preventative in making that happen for many parts of Canada. A friend of mine actually has it in Espanola, Ontario, which is like, well, you would know. Espanola, yeah. yes. So just north of Manitoulin where your family cottage is. And yeah. he literally has download speeds of, I don't know, like a, I guess it's 100 megabytes per second or whatever at all times. And he can, yeah. So, I mean, look, I actually think I wrote a blog on this actually a while ago, how I felt that properly bringing online a lot of rural areas and a lot of areas across the globe through Starlink is one of those things that could change real estate as much as cell phones did versus long distance calling, right? You really have to analyze it that way. Because if you know if work from home is to be believed or remote work or, mo- or whatever, as soon as you properly connect the entire world, there are massive implications for that, right? And in the way that we consume space. Well, and if you think about it, most of, you know, rural Canada, anything, you know, 100 kilometers north of the border is, you know, vastly empty across the country because of the lack of services and basic stuff like internet. So, I completely agree. It's funny, Bigger Pockets, one of my favorite podcasts, great real estate podcasts out of the States, they were just putting out some data exactly on this topic, work from home and how it is drastically changing housing. And they're putting it as kind of one of the leading factors that's changed housing outside of all the other crazy stuff. But anyway, let's not digress too much, Dan. We've got a great episode today, kind of more of an evergreen content. And what that means is that you can listen to this the day that it comes out, which we obviously hope you do. You can listen to it three months from that day or three years from that day. And guess what? All of this stuff will still be the same and still be relevant. What we're going to do today is kind of go over, I, I don't even know how many we've got here, maybe 15 or 20 of probably the most common real estate mortgage investing terms, acronyms, and just words that you should know. And if you're an experienced realtor, mortgage agent, investor, or just an active investor, 
you're probably well aware of most, if not all these, they might even be second language for you. But, you know, Dan and I do constantly mention a lot of these. So we really just wanted to make sure that we had an episode that people could go back and listen to and hear us discuss them, you know, use them in a sentence, provide an anecdotal story and hopefully provide value and, and make it really clear as to what we're talking about and why we use these terms. Does that sound pretty good, Dan? Yeah, I think, you know, there's this actually this like kind of idea in language where definitions of certain words vary from family to family, you know, and they can be these slight variations, but like certain people, like I grew up using the word stigma to describe certain things and somebody called me out on it online because it was like only a medical term, but in real estate, it's used to determine like a, if a house has a stigma, if somebody was murdered in it as an example, right? That you need to, you need to include a stigma clause. And so I assumed that could, that word could be applied to all other things. Well, we already said we're real estate doctors, right? So, you know, medical and real estate, there's a bit of an overlap. But I think it's just an important, you know, for those of you who don't need this base level knowledge of all of the definitions here, it's important that we'll also explain sort of why we feel they're important and kind of contextualize what these words mean and when we say them in a lot of cases and why they have value to the investors ourselves and, and individual investors. So without further ado, let me just take it from the top here. Let's jump right in. You want to start us off, buddy? Sure. So the first term we have here is ARM, which is adjustable rate mortgage. And this is a term that's actually more commonly used in the States. The interest rate for an adjustable rate mortgage changes periodically. So in Canada, we more commonly would refer to that as a variable rate mortgage. But we do have actually other formats of this. Like as an example, if you get a teaser rate from a big six bank, they'll give you maybe a one year at that that really low teaser rate. And then they move you up to the bigger rate or the non-teaser rate after. And that would technically functionally be an adjustable rate mortgage. It kind of, you know, you hear this term a lot when you hear about the states and their mortgage crisis. And basically, that was causing people to have these huge changes in capital costs, which we're going to do a further episode on. I think maybe the next episode will likely be on changes in capital costs, trigger rates, etc. But this type of mortgage product was actually hailed as one of the big causes for the, the downfall of their market. It's funny because in Canada, technically everything is by American standards, an adjustable rate mortgage, right? If you get a five-year fixed term, your rate is adjustable after that five-year term because you got to go get another new rate. Whereas now in the States, you can get a 30-year fixed rate mortgage, right? A 30-year M with a 30-year fixed rate mortgage. So just a little bit of an explanation as to like, I just want to give a little bit of the depth as to why it's a different term north and south of the border, right? Gotcha. Yeah. You want to move on to the next one here? Yeah, we've got ARV, which is really, really important to me and to, I think, most investors because that stands for after repair value. Now, that is the potential sales price of a home or any investment property as determined by the market after you have gone in there and done your value add work. So if I buy something for 500000 I go in, I add a bedroom and a bathroom upstairs and downstairs in the two different units, or I create a whole nother unit. Obviously, that value has changed and that value has changed after the repairs I've done to it. So ARV is after repair value. Awesome. Next one on the list here is amortization. This is... Sorry, isn't it? Amortization? Amore. Yeah, I mean, you're Italian, <laughs> so you know you know the proper pronunciation. 
Amortization is the schedule of your mortgage payments spread out over time. So this is basically how quickly you pay down your principal, which is the equity portion of, of the mortgage. The buyer's amortization schedule is usually one monthly payment scheduled over a 15 to 30-year period of time. So you'll hear 25-year AM. AM is short for amortization. And that's a 25-year period in which it takes to... I mean, the word, the core word, the Latin, I guess it is, mort, it means to kill. So you're killing the mortgage, you're amortizing it, killing it over a 25-year period. Wow. Bringing in the Latin. (laughs) I don't even know if it's Latin, but that's how I learned it. The mort piece, right? (laughs) Next one, we've got appraisal, which is conducted by an appraiser. An appraisal on your home is the unbiased, that's very important, the unbiased estimate of how much your home is worth. Obviously, if you ask any investor, they're going to pick top dollar for their home. But when it comes to the lender lending you money for that home, they require an unbiased appraiser from a third party. There's a few of them in the country. And they make sure that the loan amount requested is accurate for the property value. And that's a great segue into the next one, Dan, which is assessed value. Why don't you give us a quick definition of that? Yeah, for sure. So I'm just going to a little quick piece on the appraisal. The appraisal is what the bank will use to determine whether or not they have a margin of safety in lending on your deal. And right now in the current market, at least in the GTA, we're seeing almost every deal being appraised. Whereas before, you're seeing what's called a desktop appraisal where basically, and I might use this to actually inject another little term here, but the banks would use a automated valuation model or AVM to value the properties. Now they're actually sending a real appraiser to every single property because there's a degree of risk that they're trying to basically make sure that the asset is protected. Yeah. I mean, that sounds pretty good to me. Yeah, And so the next piece, the assessed value is basically what a municipal property assessment corporation for your province will use to value your property for taxes, right? So, I mean, in Ontario, they're hilariously inaccurate and they're considered, you know, almost like a joke. But in BC, people will actually use the assessment value to, you know, use it as a peg to compare it against different properties, right? Or a metric to compare it against different properties. So, they'll say, oh, it sold this much more or less than the assessed value. You know, this is a revenue neutral variable. It doesn't really matter. Just municipalities rely on a third party corporation to create this blanket valuation for all properties. And then they base their annual property tax amount off of that piece of information. Very cool. Okay. The next one we've got here is assignment. Now, I know this is a very controversial topic these days. An assignment is when the seller of a property signs over the rights and obligations to that property to the buyer before the official closing. So in other ways of describing this, it is essentially flipping the piece of paper. So you're not flipping a house, but you're securing, you know, we see this a lot in the condo market and we see a lot of essentially damage being done. And we're not going to get into all that right now because that's a whole nother, that's Pandora's box right there. But essentially, let's say I go and buy a condo. I then try to assign it to someone else before the condo is actually built. So between that zero to five year period, I will try to offload that piece of paper to someone else and ideally make money on it. Yeah. You see this a lot with wholesalers, right? Like wholesalers are basically realtors who work on assignments. So they'll go buy a property or they'll go negotiate a property at a really low price and then they'll go sell the paper to somebody on some wholesaler 
email list, right? Next one on the list here is appreciation. This one's pretty simple. One of the big benefits of investing in real estate, the appreciation is the increase in the property's value, right? And several factors can cause this increase, including improvements in the local economic situation, renovations, infrastructure development, or local development in the neighborhood. What's next on the list? Yeah, just to add to appreciation, I do like the term, you know, there's natural appreciation, like some of the things you just said, right? The town or city you're you're in grows, you know, whether a new school or transit system or something. But there's also forced appreciation, right? That comes through the renovations and, and the sweat equity, the value add that you put in. Moving on basis points or BIPs, BPS, you hear this a lot. I'm sure everyone hears this a lot now because of all the Bank of Canada hype. So a basis point is one hundredth of a percent. So there are a hundred basis points in one percent. So, you know, for instance, when the Bank of Canada has their next meeting on September the seventh, we're expecting anywhere from fifty bips to seventy-five bips to one full bip, which is essentially one full percentage point. Fifty bips would be zero point five. Yeah. So the, one of the important, dis- like, if people really want to get an understanding as to, like, oh, why don't they just say it went up one percent? It's like because because it's the Bank of Canada. They want to be special. No, it's important. Like <laughs> this is used in trading and investment banking a lot, right? And the reality is the reason is because you can't measure a change in a percentage in a percentage, right? So you need to go back to the decimal points because if you were like. Oh, the Bank of Canada overnight rate was 0.25% and then it increased 100%, right? Now you're like, oh, wait, is the Bank of Canada overnight rate 100. 100.25% now, right? And so I think that there's an important, it's important that people understand why they use this. It's not just to be dicks, they have to to make it clear. Right. There's another one I added in here as well that we don't have between, which is the burr, not to be the, the Gucci main, not the, the Gucci oh. main burr, but burr. We hear about it a lot. Everybody <laughs> wants to be this kind of investor. It's ice. You seldom see them in Canada, but the R's can be a variety of different things, but or sorry, buy, renovate, rent, refinance in that order. And then I guess there's a. And sorry, and the last one, which really completes it, is the repeat. Right. Yeah. Okay. So I believe that term was coined by our friends over at Bigger Pockets years ago. And now you just, I mean, if you're in real estate investing, even if you're just curious, you've seen that term. People have it on t shirts and there's courses on it. And, you know, it is great. It's a great methodology. So yeah, definitely a term to be aware of. But sorry, Dan, you were saying it's a lot more common in the States, I believe. I think it's just easier to execute, right? Like a true burr in Canada is tough. We don't have as good of lending for purchase plus improvement, right? You can't find hard money to go and renovate a property. You know, and they're not going to give you 120% loan to value, which is another term we're going to get to. But, you know, so you can't really find the credit margins, but you also can't really find the actual margins. Like you're not an area in the States where your land value is basically zero. The house is worth everything, right? So you find a teardown house and you put in the house is worth maybe 100K, right? Like the home, the actual structure. And then you're putting in another 100K into that. Now all of a sudden you're going to get a return on that capital that you invested, right? What's next here on the list? Okay, next one we've got here is a bridge loan. Bridge loan is a short-term loan a homeowner takes out against their property to finance the purchase of another property. And it's usually more of a short-term loan, literally can be as little as a few weeks up to I think the max is around three years. You know, we don't see these, me personally, I don't see a ton of these as an active mortgage agent. Dan and I are both still active, very active in the real estate community. Dan on the real estate agent side, me on the mortgage agent side. You know, we see these when someone has bought another property with the intention of selling their property and their property hasn't sold yet. 
So they can be expensive. There's fees included. So you don't really want to find yourself in a bridge loan situation. Yeah. I mean, it can be a reasonably valuable tool, I would say. In, if used correctly, for sure. Yeah, like yeah. Uh, people will use them in a lot of cases to close a gap between closings, as an example. So, you know, if somebody wants to buy a property and they want to buy it um, two weeks early so they have time to move all of their stuff in, then a bridge loan can be used for that purpose. That's probably the most common application, to be honest with you. And the bank will often even just give you a bridge between your own two facilities, they'll just make you pay the interest on the second loan, right? So there's a little bit of an extra capital cost and it allows you to hold two homes at the same time, basically. The next one is a blended payment, mortgage payment that includes both the principal loan amount and the interest. So it's a good segue from the bridge loan because a bridge loan in a lot of cases is interest only. The payment remains the same throughout the life of the mortgage, but actually I guess it should be the term of the mortgage. But the percentages of the payment that go towards principal or interest change over time. The easiest way to explain this is, you know, at the beginning of your mortgage, you're paying the most interest that you will because the outstanding balance, the interest is calculated on your outstanding balance of your mortgage, right? So you owe the most amount of money. Therefore, you owe the most interest on that amount of money, right? And then the interest portion goes down. And as the interest portion goes down, it makes more room for you to pay off more principal in that set fixed payment amount on a monthly basis. Which means you're actually buying back more equity of the house. That's exactly what you want to be yeah, doing. Yeah, each folks. month, exactly. The next one, this is pretty simple. You know, We reference it all the time and I feel like this is going to be a super hot topic moving forward. So we just threw this in there, the BOC, the Bank of Canada our governing body that you know is in the midst of a full on war with inflation right now and obviously interest rates and all the craziness we've seen in the housing market is a byproduct of that if you're listening to this podcast or if you're anything like Dan and I obviously we're hyper focused on real estate so we see the Bank of Canada's actions directly affecting real estate and, and the mortgage market more so than anything else but guys everything's expensive right now inflation is a real issue so the BOC, the Bank of Canada, will be referenced probably nonstop over the next two years as we navigate through this bear market. But just thought it was important to throw them in there. I like the militant verbiage as well <laughs> that they're in a war. I'm just picturing Tiff Macklem like over this big war room table with a picture of the inflation <laughs> chart on it. Like, okay, we're here. And oh, we need to move great. here. Yeah. <laughs> CapEx is the next one on the list here, capital expenditure. These are just, you know, investments into the property that you would spend long-term fixed assets like a new roof or, you know, in a business context, company equipment. You know, furniture can be a, a CapEx. I mean, furniture can also be amortized, so it can be held as an asset, but these are just basically expenses that you put into a property. In the context that we talk about it in most cases, it's like expenses that you put into a property that increase the value and there's you know some importance from an accounting perspective in capital cost allowance and CCA recapture etc cetera, etc cetera, which hopefully we'll get into a more sophisticated accounting episode eventually but I'm not going to dive into oh. that right now what's next yeah accounting is probably my weakest link so Maybe I'll get a different co-host for that one. Or yeah. I'll just... <laughs> I think it's actually most people's weakest link. Like I would say most people hire... If you're going to hire one thing, the first thing that people pay for is an accountant, I would say. Yeah. I mean, look, I've had several small businesses over the years and accounting has been... I don't want to say the downfall, but it has been one of the downfalls of every small business I've had. And you know, even when we started our corporation for this podcast and, and some of our investments, Dan, we went and, and luckily, I think we use the same accountant now. So... 
he's a pretty sharp guy and and I leave all the accounting to him. But anyways, let's not digress too much. Let's move on. The next one we've got here is a closed mortgage. So that is a mortgage product that cannot be prepaid or renegotiated before the end of the term without the lender's permission and an interest penalty. Usually those interest penalties are at least three months payment. So they can get pretty pricey. So, you know, you got to be really careful, find a good broker, really, if you're using your bank, really, you know, get your bank to go over what the product is, right? It's not all about the price when it comes to mortgage. If you're in a closed mortgage and you need to get out of it, you're going to pay for that luxury to get out of it. So just be aware of that one. Yeah, there's another method of calculation that might be worth including here as a, I just see it's not on the list, but the other type of calculation for a mortgage of this type for a closed mortgage, the discharge penalty, I guess is what it would be called. It can be an IRD or what's an interest rate differential. And this basically occurs when a customer decides to discharge or break their mortgage, also known as paying out a mortgage. And basically, they will charge you the interest rate differential or IRD, which is the difference between the principal amount you owe at the time of the prepayment and the principal amount you would owe using a similar mortgage rate, like a comparable mortgage rate. So this is basically to try and dissuade people from breaking their bad mortgage rate and going into a cheaper mortgage rate, right? And so that's another common calculation. You'll often see the mortgage penalty stated as the the greater of what you said, Nick, three months interest maybe, or the IRD, and then they'll have an IRD calculation. It's actually important to look through your mortgage documents to look for this kind of stuff to see what your worst case scenario payment would be if you had to break it on day one, right? So it's almost like the golden handcuffs for mortgage products. They get you in there and, and they'll do whatever they can. They make it nice and cushy for you. They don't want you to Well, leave. you even saw and this. they'll make it expensive for you if you do. Yeah, I mean, you saw this happening in 2020 and 2021 when rates were getting super low. A lot of people were going to their mortgage brokers and saying, look, calculate my penalty and see if it's going to save me enough money to jump into a cheaper rate, right? And people were jumping out of three and a half, four, five percent fixed rates into these record low one high one to low two percent fixed rates, right? Anyway, I don't want to get too much into obviously gaming the mortgage system here, but so we'll go <laughs> we'll go to the next one. Yeah, and that's a good segue. Speaking of mortgages, the Canadian Mortgage and Housing Corporation, CMHC, you'll hear us reference them constantly. We pull a bunch of studies from them. If you're not aware of who CMHC is, they sell mortgage and loan insurance. They are the National Housing sorry, they administer the National Housing Act for the federal government. They encourage the improvements of housing and living conditions for all Canadians. That's nice to see and hear, but let's, without getting too much into what CMHC does, let's see a little more out of you, CMHC. Anyways, let's keep moving, Dan, because I know we've got a whole bunch more on this list here. For sure, yeah. I would say CMHC probably does too much in the federal housing industry. Like They probably have too much regulation. They also buy billions of dollars worth of insured mortgage pools. Like in the States where you hear about CDOs or like people buying MBSs, mortgage-backed securities, CMHC, like as an example, from March to December 2020, CMHC purchased from financial institutions over $5.8 billion of insured mortgages pooled into the National Housing Act Mortgage-Backed Securities or NHA MBSs. We'll move on here because I don't want to get too crazy on that one, but it would probably warrant its own episode just to kind of really understand what the CMHC does. So we'll do that at some time, I think. A conditional offer is an offer to purchase a home that includes one or more conditions that must be met 
before the sale is official. So for example, getting a mortgage or a home inspection, you often see insurance as well on harder to insure properties. Sometimes you'll see, and you're starting to see this more commonly, an offer conditional on the sale of a property. It's basically saying, look, I'll buy your house on the condition that X happens. You want to move on to the next one here? Yeah, I just want to make a quick anecdote about conditional offers. Everyone forgot about them for about two years there, a year and a half there. So it's nice to see conditional offers back on the table and that's why we had it in here. It's so crazy how much I'm seeing conditional offers start to come through in the back end of the MLS, the the multiple listing system, which I think I also have on this list. That's a good thing. Yeah, no, it is. It's nice to see how many houses are selling conditional right now. We got next, deed is next. Yeah, a legal document signed by both the vendor and the purchaser to transfer ownership of a home. So pretty simple. When you buy a home and it's official, you get the deed. That makes you the legal owner. Yeah. And the next one on the list here is DTI or debt to income ratio. You'll probably hear us say this just as debt to income. I don't think I've ever used DTI. sounds a little too close to DTF, I think. This financial metric (laughs) is one of many used by lenders. It's used to contrast the possible monthly debt repayments against gross income. I think you hear it, you know, you see it in the DTI form in mortgage documents a little bit more. The next one I'll get to quickly as well is DSCR. This one you will see more commonly because I think it's a longer sentence, let's say, debt service coverage ratio. This is basically how much of the income or the property income is able to cover the mortgage. So you'll see lenders try and target debt service coverage ratio of a certain amount. Different lenders service sort of different kind of brackets. And basically, it's how much either the borrower's income or the property's income is able to service or what percentage of that income is used to service the debt. Yeah, exactly. Next one, we've got depreciation. So depreciation is how goods and assets lose value. So when we're talking about real estate, might sound like a bad thing, You want to talk to your accountant about this one. You want to be able to write off just the right amount of depreciation on your properties because for more savvy investors, it can be a pretty great tax strategy. Yeah, and I've actually seen like professionals in our space use depreciation a lot on, you know, like staging furniture as an example. You can depreciate automobiles, you can depreciate, you know, Ontario, as an Ontario taxpayer, you can depreciate more. At the beginning, I think as a federal taxpayer right now, if you buy an electric vehicle, as an example, you can depreciate a lot. So for those of you who have large portfolios or developers, as an example, you know, I was speaking with a developer a couple of days ago and he's like, every time we do a project, you know, we buy a pickup truck because you need one for the site or whatever. And, you know, they actually made money on one of the ones recently and... Yeah, because yeah, so I thought that was kind of funny as well. The next one is deposit. So this is your money that's placed in trust by a home buyer when you make an offer to purchase a home. The deposit it's basically just a good faith gesture to say, look, I'm willing to risk this amount of money to show you that I'm not going to walk away from this deal illegally. Because if I did, then I would lose this amount of money. The deposit is held in trust by the real estate sales representative's brokerage or a lawyer until the sale is complete, at which point it's released as part of the purchase price of the home. I think there's an important distinction here that we should also maybe make, Nick, is deposit is different from a down payment. In most cases, the deposit becomes Very, yes. becomes part of your down payment. But I hear a lot of mm-hmm. you know first-time investors and buyers saying, not knowing the difference and saying, oh, I'll say, what's your deposit? And they're like, oh, I'm putting 20% down. And I'm like, that's a massive deposit. Like You don't need to put 20% <laughs> down. You know, yeah. And so the down payment is the amount of money that you're using to secure the loan with the bank. And that's what you would give to your lawyer later on closing. 
the deposit is typically, I would say on average, 5% of the purchase price is pretty standard across the country. In some smaller areas, you see lower you know, lower amounts. But I think as the market gets a little bit less and less safe, you start to see agents really pushing for that 5% deposit because that means that basically there's enough deposit money to cover the commission of the transaction. To be honest with you, that's, I think, why that's become that way. I won't go further on that one, but what's next here? No, but that's a good distinction. So, I appreciate that. The next one we've got is egress from the Latin... No, I'm just kidding. (laughs) (laughs) Egress means essentially another way to get out. You'll find this is a word from the building code, which Dan and I have both unfortunately had to study at extent throughout our lives. If you want to fall asleep, read the building code. But on a serious note, there's a lot of great stuff in there, especially if you're going to be doing some of your own construction, something like a basement suite or basement suite conversion. You'll really want to figure out how many means of egress you need how big the means of egress need to be, i.e. do you need a larger window that count as an egress? So yeah, that's that. Why don't we move on to equity, Dan? Tell us about that. It's a pretty good one. Yeah, I think maybe worth noting that I think that an egress window has to be 3.8 square feet and it has to be a certain height from the ground. So you usually say a meter corner to corner, like you know the way flat screens are measured and it has to be a bit measured, big enough. Like, yeah. yeah, basically has to be big enough for a human body to get out of, to climb out of in the case of a fire. You often see this in basement suites, especially if we're doing ADUs, accessory dwelling units. I probably should have put that one at the top of the list, but ADU, an accessory dwelling unit and a DADU, which is a detached accessory dwelling unit. This is where egress windows really matter because you need fire escapes for your tenants. Equity is the next one on the list. The difference between the home's market value and the amount owing on the mortgage. This is the portion of the home that has been paid for and is officially owned in quotation marks by the owner of the property. That one's not too sophisticated there. Yeah. I mean, we like equity though. Yeah. I mean, this is what it's all about. (laughs) This is real estate right here. Exactly. One word, equity. Next one's pretty simple. It's the descriptions essentially in the name. It's a fixed rate mortgage. So a fixed rate mortgage guarantees your interest rate for a predetermined amount of time. So let's say I lock in a fixed, you know, some of the geniuses over the last year or so, year and a half locked in super low fixed rates. So typically for on a five-year term, when that term expires, you'll have the option to stay with the same lender or switch to a different one. However, you wish you were had that fixed rate that you do, you'll probably have a little bit of sticker shock at that point if you were able to lock in a super low fixed. The next one, Dan, is one of your favorites. And I, anytime I drive past one of these, I send you a picture and I've got some funny stories about how you deal with these. So what's FISBO? FISBO is the clown from Modern Family Season 1, <laughs> Episode 9. It appears the first time Cam is a clown. Is that right? Oh, no, it's actually, sorry, it's for sale by owner. That's what it is, which I actually think is hilarious because I guess Phil Dunphy in Modern Family is a residential realtor. I feel like the people who wrote this show, like his wife must have been a realtor or something. The fact They're that they, smart. That they yeah. named the clown Fizbo. Yeah, I thought it was funny, but Fizbo is F-S-B-O, which is for sale by owner. I actually think these present very keen opportunities. This is going to be me cannibalizing my business a little bit. But if you're an investor, I would say go and you know, and you want to be a sophisticated investor, go and call these before you go look at any properties with realtors because you're often saving yourself the fee by going direct to the seller if you see it for sale by owner. And and often, you know, I mean, I hate to say it, but there's often a little bit of a 
I guess the fee sensitivity often translates to a little bit of like a stinginess almost in the market. So you can get a little bit of hardheadedness on price. Like usually if you see a FISBO sign on the lawn, it's associated with somebody not having a reasonable expectation of what their house is worth. But if you're a good negotiator, you might be able to find good opportunities here. I call a lot of FISBOs to try and convert them to listings or to purchase them as investments personally, right? So Yeah, FISBOs are also sometimes present a good opportunity for a VTB, which I don't know if we included that one on here either. No, it's not, but we'll get to that. VTB is... Yeah, VTB, vendor take back. I think we discussed it at length in the previous episode. Yeah, but basically where the seller becomes the bank, they're lending you their equity to reference the past term that we just did. Exactly. So essentially, you take the mortgage from that owner. So let's move on here. We've got the next one is FMV, fair market value. This is different than the appraised value and is used for tax reasons. The reason that is because the house can be predicted to sell on the open market when both the buyer and the seller are on knowledge. So fair market value, you know, it's hard to say what that would be in today's kind of kangaroo market as as we've coined it. But typically, yeah, I think the distinction is who gives you the value as well, right? So on the assessed value, the tax company is giving you the value or the assessment corporation is giving you the value. On an appraised value, an appraiser or basically the bank is giving you the value. And on a fair market value or FMB, basically, typically the realtor is providing you with this value. People will go and get what's called a CMA or comparative market analysis, which is basically where a realtor will take a comparison of a couple of different properties that are similar to yours and present you with their best estimate of what your property would sell for if it was listed on the market, which is a fair market value. Let's get to the next one here, which is a couple of mortgage terms, gross debt service and total debt service or GDS and TDS. You hear these all the time. These are the percentage of your total monthly income that goes towards housing costs on the mortgage side. Canada Mortgage and Housing Corporation recommends your GDS remains at or below 39%. So gross debt service below 39%. You can check out CMHC's gross debt service calculator in the show notes, which Nick was kind enough to pop in there. What's the next one here? Next one, we've got GRI, gross rental income. So gross rental income is the sum of rent plus any additional fees or expenses paid to the landlord by the tenant. Investors can determine their adjusted gross rental income by using GRI and then removing their expenses. So this is just another way to run your numbers here. Yeah, there are a handful of different ways to calculate that. Effective gross income, so EGI, NOI, which becomes net operating income after your expenses. Income is income, right? I mean, like as long as you know that one is before expenses and the other one is after expenses, I think you're okay there. The next one here is high ratio mortgage, a mortgage loan that is greater than 80% of the value of a property. This type of mortgage typically requires mortgage loan insurance, which is, you know, that CMHC mortgage insurance that we referred to before. Um, what's the next one here? A lean. Not to be confused with lean back. <laughs> yeah, sorry. This is L-I-E-N. A property Did lean. Did you see that video of Fat Joe on TikTok saying like, today's value is yes, not- today's the, yeah. price is not today's price. Yes. Yeah, I love that. That's why we had to I throw in that. the lean back. <laughs> Shout out to Fat Joe. Anyone who likes old rap. Yeah, anyways. Well, property lean is an unpaid debt on a piece of property. So it's a legal notice- And it denotes legal action can be taken by a lender to recover the debt they are owed. It can come from unpaid taxes, court judgments, or unpaid bills. 
They can slow down the home buying process when unattended. So this is something, you know, I haven't come across this personally. I do know some horror stories. This is something you got to be aware of, you know, get your lawyers to check this out. That's their job. If you buy a property and there's a lien on it, you're going to have a major pain in the ass and a deal could go sideways very Yeah, very and also, or if you sell a property and it has a lien on it, like you can get sued for not disclosing that. Liens would typically come up during the title search date. So you could actually fully, if you're a professional and you're not pulling title on the properties that you're listing for sale, the seller might not even have equity to sell the home or to pay commission on the sale of a home because their property has been leaned by lenders or you know contractors as an example is a very common one you see contractor liens all the time in the development space like they, the contractors love to lean people if they're two days late on their you know payments or whatever so but it's a very effective way to get people to pay because they literally cannot sell the property or do anything with it until that lien is discharged so next one on here is ltv or loan to value the loan to value ratio is the mortgage loan balance divided by the home's value so we talked about that high ratio mortgage before. It shows how much you're borrowing from a lender as a percentage of your home's appraised value. So high ratio mortgage is that 80% or greater LTV. Open mortgage is a mortgage that can be prepaid, paid off, or renegotiated at any time without an interest penalty. The interest rate on an open mortgage is usually higher. So you're paying a little bit of a premium for that privilege than on a closed mortgage with an equivalent term. What's the next one here? Operating costs, Nick? Yeah. So operating costs, pretty simple. You know, If you're an investor, you should be aware of all of these on each of your individual properties. These include property taxes, property insurance, utilities, maintenance, repairs, and you, know, you want to put something in for vacancy and, and CapEx and a few others. The next one, PITI, principal interest taxes and insurance. That's what the abbreviation PITI stands for, all of which can be included in a mortgage payment. So it provides you a nice clear shot, especially investors, a nice clear shot, comprehensive view with all of those costs in one single lump sum amount. Yeah, and I think, you know, in the commercial space, you'll often hear a similar category is a TMI or taxes, maintenance, and insurance. So you'll always see commercial leases will say, you know, your per square foot value plus TMI, that's taxes, maintenance, and insurance. So not to be confused with your PITI, which can be pushed into a mortgage payment, as Nick mentioned. The first piece of that in your PITI is principal, which is basically the amount of equity or sorry, the amount of value owing on the mortgage, outstanding balance on the mortgage that you would pay in your mortgage payment other than interest. So that's the amount of money that you're paying basically almost as a savings vehicle to buy equity in your home. The next one here is porting, which is transferring your mortgage and the existing interest rate and terms from one property to another. So you can actually take your mortgage with you. There's often a small porting fee, but in an environment right now where a lot of people are faced with, oh, I have this amazing rate and I don't want to pay that huge IRD penalty to reference that earlier term, you might want to take your mortgage with you, right? And so this is a tool in which you would use to do that. The other thing is you can also sell a mortgage, which I feel like might become pretty common over the next couple of years because there's going to be a lot of really compelling interest rates to be sold. That was really common in sort of like the 80s and 90s. And we can talk a little bit about that, you know, like you hear about the Oklahoma clauses and stuff like that, but we'll do that another time. Yep. Well, I just want to touch on porting. That must be from the Latin word to move or something like that because I'm thinking portaging. Yeah, no, it is for sure. Of a mortgage, I mean, yeah, well, it just, right? yeah. So I'm, like porting something is a common English term, I think, anyway. But yeah, yeah, you're right. No, I think it's Latin. I'm pretty, it's got to be Latin. <laughs> yeah, I forgot you're the expert. <laughs> yeah. 
Okay, so I'm going to rifle up the next two. ROI, we all know this one, return on investment. It's a ratio between the net income and the investment. This ratio is used to determine how much money an investor receives after all the necessary payments have been deducted. So simple equation, investment gains minus investment cost divided by the cost of the investment. The reason we're not doing a handful of different return metrics in this sort of glossary of terms is because we're going to do an entire episode on sort of the best ways to measure the ROI or rate of return on different properties and our favorites and why we like each one. So for those of you who are confused why we haven't included things like cap rate, equity multiple, etc. We're going to do an entire episode on sort of your your top five investment metrics. The next one here is REITs, Real Estate Investment Trust. These are basically companies that they function almost like a limited partnership in the way that they cash flow or the return gets pushed right to your personal balance sheet. So it's an investment vehicle. I think there's only a handful of them in the Canadian market, but in the States, they have REITs that hold property. And then they also have mortgage REITs, which in Canada, we have mixed. And basically, you know, they're companies that provide an investment opportunity similar to a mutual fund and allow anyone to invest in a portfolio of real estate assets without needing to purchase a rental property or manage it themselves. So it gives you exposure to real estate without the physical exposure to real estate. Yeah, that's great. You mentioned mix. That's another good one. I know we've probably mentioned them before. Just why don't you give us a quick, yeah. um, what, what does that acronym stand yeah, for? Yeah, MIC is a mortgage investment corporation. And then there's MIF, which is mortgage investment fund. These are basically just ways that, again, the layperson can invest into a fund that lends out money. So similar to a REIT where those companies own, so they will aggregate the capital of a bunch of investors and then own real estate. A MIC or a MIF will aggregate a bunch of capital and lend it out in mortgage funds. Not to be confused with syndicated mortgages, which we might actually do an episode on as well, because there's been obviously a lot of controversy around those in the Canadian market. All right. The final, the finale. This one, Daniel, we've got a quick funny anecdotal story. I know we're running late on time here. So I want to just get this one out and give a quick anecdote as to why it's important. It is status certificate. That is a certificate that outlines a condominium's corporate financial and legal status. So you're not going to see a status certificate, even though it wouldn't be a bad idea when you buy a house. But when you buy a condo, you need to look. It's not a want or a maybe thing. You really, really need to look and take an in-depth look at the status certificate because those condo fees can be high already and they usually only go up. Condo fees kind of never really go down. And as the building ages or gets to, you know, one of those um, kind of pivotal ages, you know, whether it's 15 or 25 years and the roof needs to be done or the parking garage needs to be resurfaced or any of those major expenses, well, guess who pays for that? It's the owners of each one of those condos. And you essentially collectively pool your money into the condo corp. Then they reallocate it similar to a smaller mid-cap landlord will be doing as their cap X. So your status certificate is money that you pay into essentially what is used as the cap X for that condo. Now, we've seen some, you know, let's say... Yeah, I just tell the story. The well, I mean, ignorant, but yeah, so yeah, you know, look, yeah. I mean, like the reality is, you know, your brother or somebody was looking at purchasing a property. They wanted to. It was a condo, and they were going to throw an offer in. And the agent who was showing them the property didn't have a ton of experience with this type of thing. I said something doesn't sound right here. The market's too hot. This place should have been sold already. 
get the condo or get the status certificate. Let me have a look at it. Before I even got that, I think a lawyer reviewed it and said, you can't buy this place. Like even if you do, a bank won't lend on it because it's basically, it's going to be too illiquid to sell in, in the future. Like there's no security there. And there's a huge vulnerability to what's called a special assessment where basically they're going to ask you to pony up a bunch of money for a major repair or whatever. They didn't have a big enough reserve fund. And we're going to do probably an entire episode on what it is investing with a condo. We might even talk to Jim Chong about that one from TikTok, the big investor guy, because I'm not a huge condo. I really don't like condos. And this is one of the reasons why. And I think that modern condos, their status certificates, their reserve funds are ticking time bombs, right? Because I think that you have basically the status certificate is the financial health of a building. It's similar to a balance sheet or other financial documents that you'll hear the guys our podfathers on the Canadian Investor Podcast talk about the way that they'll analyze things. So the difference between a condo corp, and I'm sorry to go off on this at, right at the end when I know we're short for time, but a condo corp is a handful of people who don't have experience managing investments, right? It's a volunteer board typically that don't have an experience managing especially massive high-rise buildings, the CapEx budgets on massive high-rise buildings, making decisions on where capital should be spent, Right. Whereas in an investment side, you know, the centralized ownership is an owner, an investor who typically has a, a higher degree of experience, or at least they're treating it like a full-time job. They're treating it like an investment. So again, you have this condo corp that has the status certificate shows you basically how much money the corp has, how much is being paid into the reserve fund, what expenses they have coming up in the pipeline, et cetera. So it'll give you an idea for the financial health of a condo building. That I think covers yeah, it. Well said. Well, it was just my lawyer literally called me laughing, literally called me laughing and was like, you can't buy this. this is the worst one I've seen in 25 years. So someone bought that condo and I hope they knew what they were getting into. So lesson learned, people look at the stats certificate. Anyways, that's our time today. Thanks so much for listening, Dan. Always a pleasure. Yeah, my pleasure. And thanks for those of you who have asked us for this episode. Keep it coming with the episode suggestions. You know, please, even if you want to leave us a five star review with an episode suggestion, that might even be more appreciated. That would be nice. We'd like that. See you next time. Awesome. All right. Thanks, everybody. Bye. The Canadian Real Estate Investor is for entertainment purposes only and not financial or investment advice. Always do your own due diligence. Nick Hill is a mortgage agent with Premier Mortgage Center, license number 10317, and a partner in GH Mortgage Group. Agent license is M21004037. Daniel Foch is a real estate broker at Royal LePage or Community Realty, a member of Royal LePage Commercial, and a licensee with the Canadian Real Estate Association, Ontario Real Estate Association, and a member of the Toronto Real Estate Board.